Hi, everyone, and welcome to 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. The two Golden Age radio shows, Escape and Suspense, were radio's leading anthology series of high adventure and drama, with Escape airing on CBS Radio from July 7, 1947 to September 25, 1954, and Suspense continued to 1962. These two shows presented great American-made radio drama, which became the foundation for TV. Radio, as you know, is purely acoustic, with no visual component, and it relied on great scriptwriters and actors to enable the listeners to imagine the characters and the story. It was high drama, great acting, and terrific stories. As one of the shows say, all designed for you from the four walls of today. Here we offer the very best of escape and suspense. We hope you enjoy this week's presentation. And if you do, send us a kind review for 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. And now, our two stories. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our star tonight is Peter Lorre, playing the part of the Hungarian Count Stefan Kohari, a gentleman of sinister aspect. The story is by John Dixon Carr, who calls it The Devil's Saint. If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution till the last possible moment. And so, it is with the Devil's Saint and Mr. Peter Lorre's performance we again hope to keep you in... Suspense. The Devil's Saint. Paris, 15 years ago. Paris as it used to be, when lights twinkled from the old Trocadero to the hill of Sacré-Cœur, when taxicabs honked and the beat of tango swayed, and Chinese lanterns gleamed above the lake in the Bois, when, in short, you and I were young. Come then to the President's Ball at the Opera, St. Catherine's Day, 1927. A fancy dress ball at the Opera, filling these marble halls with a multitude of masks and a multitude of dreams. The mosaic decorations are no less bright than the colors that weave here. Harlequins and Columbine, Cleopatra and Musketeers. In the great marble foyer, remember it, they have set out little tables and lines of palms behind which you may sit screened. Look at one such table. A young man wearing the scarlet and gold uniform of an English guard's officer in Wellington's day. A dark, 
haired young girl in the costume of the Picante. And as we approach... Ned, don't please. You mustn't. Oh, why not? You really don't mind, do you? No, of course I don't mind. Only you mustn't. Oh, Ned. Look here, Alona. We've got to settle this thing. You have enjoyed being here tonight, haven't you? Ned, I've loved it. After being cooped up at my uncle's place in the country, it's like heaven. All right. When I take you back to the hotel, I'm going to face this uncle of yours tonight. No. No, please don't. I'm going to say that you and I intend to get married, and that's that. I can't marry you, Ned. I've told you that. But why not? Just give me one good reason. Because I can't. My uncle, he would never allow it. Never. And that seems to you a good reason enough? Yes, Ned. This uncle of yours, uh, what's his name? Count Stefan Kohari. He's a Hungarian, I think you said. Yes, so am I. My mother was an American. What's he like, actually? Oh, he's a little eccentric. Mm-hmm. Oh, please don't misunderstand. He's a great scholar and a historian, only... He's a little strange. He... Ned. What is it? There he is now. Your uncle? Yes, that elegant man in plain evening clothes with the order of the golden fleece across his chest. Oh, I see him. Oh, he looks as black as a thundercloud. He's throwing those two dressed as devils aside as though they didn't exist. Give me my mask quick before he sees us. No, Alona. Why not? We'd better face this out now. Sit still. Good evening, Ilona. Good evening, Uncle Stefan. Uncle... May I present Edward Whiteford? How do you do, sir? How do you do? Ilona, do you think that costume is quite the thing to wear in public? Why not? Well, an older generation might call it immodest. It looks like... Like uh, what? Nothing. Will you go and get your cloak or your domino or whatever you wore here? Uncle, please don't make me go home so soon. It's hardly 11 o'clock. I was not asking you to go home, my dear. I was merely asking you to put on a wrap. All right, I'll get it. You stay and talk to Ned. I shall be delighted. Will you sit down, sir? Thank you. (laughs) You seem to have quite a gathering at this table. Yes. Some friends of mine from the embassy. They're upstairs dancing now. (laughs) Well, (laughs) look, glasses, glasses, and still more glasses. (laughs) You know, I was quite an addict once at uh, musical glasses. Have you ever tried it, young man? (laughs) Well, it's very easy. You take a spoon like this, you see, and... <laughs> like it? Well, forgive me, sir, but there's something I'd like to ask you. Yes? Well, I don't know exactly how to say this, so I'd better say it in the shortest way. I want to marry your niece. Well, look out, sir. You smashed one of the glasses. A few francs will pay for that. But there are other things of higher value. At least to me. Well, maybe I ought to mention first that my full name is Lord Edward Whiteford. My father's the Earl of Grey. Indeed. <laughs> well, I only mention that to show we're, well, respectable enough. Well, the British ambassador will vouch for me, sir, if you'd like to ring him up. And perhaps I ought to mention that uh, I've always kept Ilona carefully guarded from the world. Almost too carefully guarded, don't you see? That, Lord Edward, depends on my reasons. Sorry, sir. You have known Ilona about how long? Four days. Four days. You wouldn't even choose a business partner in four days. Yet to want to marry my Ilona after four days. But we know our own minds, sir. You do, huh? (laughs) Then you know more than the wisest man in this world. However, as one whose dearest wish is Ilona's happiness, I I hope it is, Count Kohari. Do you doubt what I say? Oh, no, sir. (laughs) 
Well, I will make you a proposition. I own an estate in Touraine, not far from Paris, sir. A little chateau, a few hundred acres, fishing. Very good stable of horses. I know, Lona told me. Well, she did. Well, then here is my suggestion. Why not come down and visit us for a week or two? Oh, that's very decent of you, sir. Oh, not at all, not at all. <laughs> and uh, if at the end of that time you're not cured of this infatuation... Then... Oh, it's not an infatuation, I swear it's not. No? Well, if at the end of that time you're not cured uh, permanently of this feeling, you may take it, Lona. And with my blessing, that's fair, isn't it? Oh, it's more than fair, Uncle Harry. I don't know how to thank you. Oh, well, please, don't even try. <laughs> and at least I can promise you a very interesting experience. You see, at the Chateau d'Azay, there is one certain bedroom. We call it the tapestry room. Yes? Well, uh, I assure you, it'll be very interesting for you to sleep in that room. Why? Is it haunted or something? Oh, no. No, 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 not haunted. <laughs> Well, now, if you don't mind, I shall say good night, and I hope I can trust you to bring Ilona safely to the hotel. Au revoir. Look over there. What is it, sir? Just look. Streams of our fellow guests pouring down the main staircase. Shapes of nightmare. Shapes of delirium. Insane dead masks. Only the eyes move. Wouldn't we be terrified, perhaps? If he would look behind those gargoyle faces? Oh, no, I don't think so. They're only ordinary people like ourselves. That sure is uh, where you make your mistake. Well, I shall expect you for the weekend. And uh, encore une fois. Au revoir. Ned. Ned. It's all right, Alona. You can come out from behind those palms. What was he saying? I couldn't hear. Alona, it couldn't be better. Well, he's a very decent old boy, actually. And he's invited me to the Chateau d'Azay. Did he say anything about the tapestry room? Yes. He invited me to sleep there. And you said? I said I would, naturally. You mustn't do it, Ned. I won't let you do it. But why the devil not? Because everybody who sleeps in that room dies. Dies? Are you serious? Oh, Ned, please don't do it. Oh, nonsense. There are a lot of superstitions about every old house. This isn't a superstition, Ned. It happened once when I was a little girl. A man insisted on sleeping there. They found him dead in the morning. So? How did he die? They don't know. There wasn't a mark on his body. He wasn't shot or stabbed or strangled or poisoned or hurt in any way. He was just dead. nights later, in the province of France, now known as under Elaware, but once called Touraine, the ancient land beloved of Rabelais and Balzac. But now, as the wind moans down the valleys, and rain flickers across the apple trees, and thunder stirs in those haunted hills, it can bring little comfort to a young man driven in an ancient carriage from the railway station along snake-like roads. To what? destination. Ahead, a lift of lightning shows the gray walls and conical slate-roofed towers of a chateau set some distance back from the road. 
Light shine from its narrow windows, dimly seen through the rain as... Driver! Coachman! Oui, monsieur. Is that the Chateau d'Azé up ahead? Oui, monsieur. I will take you to the very door if... Uh... If what? Why do you cross yourself? If I am permitted. What should stop you? Only fear, monsieur. And I am not much afraid. What's that? Only the dogs, monsieur. They keep many dogs, large dogs, at the Chateau d'Azé. Well, here we are. Bonsoir, monsieur. And if I may be permitted a word of advice... Well? Beware of the tapestry room. the bell on this door, there might at least be a knocker. Ah, got it. Et alors, monsieur? Vous cherchez? Je cherche le château d'Azé. Et je... Je... Uh, je... Uh, perhaps it would be better if monsieur spoke English, yes? You are Lord Edward Whiteford. Yes. Monsieur is expected. Please to enter. Monsieur's at and cool. Thank you. Ned. Hello, Elona. Oh, darling. A breath of palm, petite. What uncle? Oh, you'd better not kiss me, Ned. Madame Flay says to look out for my uncle. Madame Flay is our housekeeper. Oh. Well, where's your uncle now? In the drawing room. He's playing the piano. Come along. Elona, is anything wrong? Oh, everything's wrong. Two of my dogs were in horrible pain this afternoon. Dr. Solomon had to put them out with chloroform. You don't think that... I hope nobody's practicing, that's all. Well, here we are. Oh, nice tiger skins on the floor. I say, who's the little old man with the gray beard sitting over there by the fire? That's Dr. Solomon. <laughs> Hasn't he funny-looking eyes? He watches and watches and watches. He's an old friend of the family. Shh, come along. Let's get this over with. Ah, Lord Edward. <laughs> well, I see my niece has anticipated me. Welcome to the Chateau d'Azé. Thank you, Count Harry. Oh, you must be very wet after your long drive. Go up to the fire and warm yourself. Uh, uh, Madame Flay. Yes, monsieur. Uh, please tell Antoine to take our guest's luggage up to the tapestry room. The tapestry room, monsieur? That is what I said, Madame Flay. Yes, monsieur. By an odd coincidence, Lord Edward, uh, Dr. Solomon and I were just discussing the fate of the last person who slept in a tapestry room. This is not good, my friend. This is against my advice. <laughs> it's against his advice. <laughs> Here, Dr. Solomon croaked. This is not good, I tell you. It is the wrong season of the moon. Uh, the wrong moon. <laughs> but there is no moon tonight. It's raining cats and dogs. Don't talk about dogs. Nevertheless, it is the wrong season of the moon. I say no more. Cheerful blunder, that doctor. Don't do it, Ned. I won't be responsible if they make you do it. But uh, look here, Count Kohari. What did happen to the last bloke who slept in the tapestry you room? You mustn't call him a bloke, sir. He was a very saintly gentleman. The Bishop of Tours. That was some time ago when Delona was only 15 years old, but uh, surely she must remember it. I remember it. The church, said our bishop. 
has no use for superstitions. Well, <laughs> he insisted on sleeping there. I, I made it as comfortable for him as possible, but he was found dead next morning with a crucifix still in his hand. Was it poison? There was no poison, monsieur. No. <laughs> Here, Dr. Solomon. It's true, Ned. Well, there were just two very curious things. You see, in uh, connection with that death, on a mantelpiece there was found burning a stick of incense. Just ordinary incense, nothing wrong with it. Yes, sir. And uh, under the dressing table, the police found it was an empty jar of ointment. Now, here's your wits. A dead man, some burning incense, and an empty jar of ointment. What do you make of that? Oh, I don't make anything of it. It's crazy. Please do not speak like that. I'm sorry. It is still the wrong season of the moon. Well, what I really meant, sir, was this. Is, is there any reason for this story of death? Reason? Any legend attached to the room or anything like that? Yes, there is. Well, sir? Well, we are a very old family, Lord Edward. Old and perhaps accursed. When my ancestors moved from Hungary to France in the 17th century, they brought certain beliefs with them. The old religion. The old religion? Yes, the cult of Diana, the cult of Janus, the cult of freedom and fertility. The witch cult, if you prefer. Oh, now look here, sir. Must we talk about this? Well, you smile, but... Uh... When I say the word witch, you think of some humorous picture on a Halloween's card. It was very different in the Middle Ages, believe me. Then, my friend, there existed an organized religion which rivaled the church. There were many to worship unashamed at the Grand Sabbath. Many to receive all favors from Satan, their master, and to dance forever joyously in the red, flaming quadrilles of hell. Now, some 200 years ago, an ancestress of mine, Katerina Kohari, was tortured to death in a tapestry room for professing the old religion. Many persons have not thought it safe to sleep there since. Are you answered? Oh, come, sir. This is some kind of elaborate joke. Joke? The Bishop of Tours did not find it a joke. Not the mark on his body. I assure you as a physician, not the mark on his body. <laughs> no, not the mark on his body. <laughs> Here, Dr. Solomon. Yes, I hear him. Well, understand me, Lord Edward, there's no compulsion in this. If you do wish to sleep in that room, all right? Oh, if you ridiculous. don't wish to... I'm not afraid to sleep there, sir. Well, I thought perhaps you want to change your mind. Oh, never. Would you like me to make a wager on that? What sort of wager? Well, if I spend the night in this famous room and come out of it alive... Yes? Will you give your consent to the marriage immediately? Tomorrow morning? Tomorrow morning? Why? Because I don't think the atmosphere of this house is good for a loner. What do you say? Will you do it? Very well, Lord Edward. I accept the terms of your wager. Don't do it, Ned. For the love of heaven, don't do it. High up in the north tower of the Chateau d'Azay, 
under the conical slate roof is the circular room hung with faded tapestries. These tapestries move slightly with uneasy mimic life to the clamor of the storm outside. Candles burn along the mantelpiece and beside the great four-poster bed. The flames of these candles waver, too, as the door opens. This is the tapestry room, monsieur. Thank you, Madame Flay. That is the mantelpiece where the incense burned. That is the bed where Monsignor le Bishop died. Very inviting, isn't it? Will there be anything else monsieur requires? Some sandwiches, a decanter of whiskey? Oh, no, thanks. I had a drink with the Count Kohari before I came upstairs. Pierre, monsieur? Uh, Monsieur's shaving water will be brought up in the morning, if he requires it. Good night. Fat old hoppy. Trying to scare a fellow out of his wits just because... Oh, I hope they built a good fire anyway. Didn't realize how cold it was. Temperature must have dropped. What's that? It's me, Elona. May I come in? No, Elona. Get out of here. That's not very gallant of you. No, I mean, I, I don't want you exposed to whatever it is. Ned, listen. Are you going to bed? Or are you going to sit up all night? I'm going to sit up all night, naturally. Then let me sit up with you. No. Why not? Well, it may be dangerous. Besides, I promised your uncle I'd go through with this alone. I wish you hadn't had that drink with him. Why? He couldn't have done anything to it. It was you who poured it. Yes, that's true, only... Listen. Is that? It sounds like footsteps. Yes, but where's it coming from? It seems to be right here in the room. It seems to come from all directions. Doesn't it sound like somebody walking between the walls? By George, it is someone walking inside the wall. Get behind that tapestry, Lona. Quick. Hide there. Yes. Count Kohari. Where did you come from? Oh, forgive me, Lord Edward, for uh, seeming to appear out of the wall and between the tapestries. <laughs> like Mephisto appearing too fast, huh? <laughs> and this red dressing gown perhaps adds to the effect, too. <laughs> How'd you get here? A passage between the walls? Yes, exactly. Little device my ancestors for visiting this room. You know, they invented that when its occupant was so unmannerly as to bolt the door. Door's not bolted. You could have walked straight in. But I couldn't have done it unobserved. No. Maybe not. Have you had any other visitors, Lord Edward? No. Are you quite sure of that? Quite sure. Well, then, uh, since nobody saw me come here, I'll just sit down by the fire. <laughs> Please sit opposite me. Is this the showdown, sir? Hmm? I don't understand. Well, there's got to be a showdown between us. Is that why you're here? Oh, I'm here, young man, to explain certain things to you. Uh, will you have a cigarette? Thank you. I... Oh, <laughs> they're perfectly all right. That is what you're afraid of? I'll have one, yes. A light? Thank you. Well, when I was discussing the witch cult a while ago, you didn't appear to think I meant what I said. Do you want a perfectly frank answer to that? Yes. I think you're mad enough to mean anything. <laughs> what you say, in a sense, is quite true. Seeing an old and uh, inbred family like ours, the mind can crack in the fantasies of witchcraft 
become as real, well, more real than the living world. Let me give you an example. Go on. The saucer on the table beside you is Ming porcelain. It was once owned by Katerina Kohari, a martyr of the old religion. Yet you are using it as an ash tree. Oh, I beg the witch lady's pardon. I'll blow off the ash. Well, that's a very dangerous remark, sir. Don't you understand that the worship of evil can be as strong and compelling as the worship of good? That the devil can have his saints, too? That to a sick brain which knows but can't help itself, you have profaned this room, merely by entering it. And therefore, you deserve to die. Like the Bishop of Tours? Exactly. You're not going to tell me the devil killed him. The devil's agent may be flesh and blood. Then it was murder. Oh, of course it was murder. Murder so cunningly contrived that no one ever saw through it. Go on. I asked you before to use your wits on this problem. Well, look, incense was burned in this room. You know why? Suppose you tell me. Well, obviously, I think, to conceal something else, which would be too easily noticed. To conceal what? For instance, the smell of chloroform. Chloroform? Yes. A drug not really well understood by laymen. Dr. Solomon, by the way, was using chloroform this afternoon to dispose of some dogs. So I've heard. Well, Dr. Solomon is old and uh, very forgetful. You mean chloroform could be stolen? Oh, yes, it could be easily. Now, suppose, I mean, just suppose I take a pad saturated with chloroform. I place it over the mouth and nostrils of a man already sleeping or drugged so that he gets no air. Wait a minute. That, that won't do. Why not? Chloroform burns and blisters when it touches the skin. You leave marks. Oh, not at all, my friend, not at all. If I first covered the mouth and nostrils with some substance like... Uh, Ointment. Yes. Now you're waking up. Hi. Now observe what follows. In a few seconds, unconsciousness. In two minutes or three minutes, death. Certain death, yes. Oh, but chloroform, you see. <laughs> it evaporates very quickly. There is no trace in the stomach since nothing has been swallowed. Well, delay your post-mortem for 24 hours. Very easy matter in these country districts, and no trace remains in the blood. Murder without a mark, Lord Edward. Murder without a mark. You can't do it, Count Kohani. There's one thing you're forgetting. What is that? I'm not sleeping and I'm not drugged. Oh, yes, you are. How? When? In the cigarette? Hmm? No. In a drink you had with me. What was it? Morphine. And you've had enough to put three men to sleep. Ah. See, that's it. Well, try to get up. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> you see? You've knocked over the fire irons. You'd have been in a fire yourself if I hadn't caught Take you. Take your hands off me. Just as you please. Oh, if I could reach that bell pull. Well, but you can't. Well, better sit down again. You murdering lunatic. So that's how you killed the Bishop of Tours. And that's how you're going to kill me. Who, I? Well, you don't think I killed the Bishop of Tours. Didn't you? You fool. I'm not trying to kill you. I'm trying to save you. Dr. Solomon. Yes, monsieur. Well, come out, come out. Come in the room. Come out and be my witness. Yes, monsieur. I shall always guard the family honor. 
Even when I guess how men die. This young man evidently thinks I've been talking about myself. Am I in a popular parlance insane? Oh, monsieur. Heaven forbid. I have never known a saner man. Have you any notion, Lord Edward, why I brought you to this house? You would never have believed me if I had merely told you. So I had to bring you here to show you. Show me what? What? <laughs> Look, look at the tapestries. Come out of there. Come out of there. Hey, come out. Ilona. Yes. Yes, Ilona. Why do you think I've kept Ilona so well guarded from the world? Why, at a fancy dress ball, for instance, did I object to the costume of a medieval witch whose dogs were poisoned so that chloroform should be brought? Who poured the drink? Drugged with morphine. In the devil's name, what are you trying to tell me? It was Ilona. <laughs> She's been helplessly, hopelessly insane for more than ten years. <laughs> Closes The Devil's Saint, starring Peter Lorre. Tonight's tale of suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday. William Spear, the producer, John Dietz, the director, Bernard Herman, the composer-conductor, and John Dixon Carr, the author, are collaborators on... Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
This is the man in black. Here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our star tonight is Bela Lugosi, playing the part Professor Antonio Basile, psychologist. The story is by J. Donald Wilson, who calls it The Doctor Prescribed Death. If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. This series of tales is calculated to intrigue you, stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with the doctor prescribed death and Bela Lugosi's performance. We again hope to keep you in suspense. Professor Antonio Basile has a theory, but let him tell you about it. As a psychologist, I have worked out a theory. A theory I know to be sound. I contend that a person who has decided to kill himself can very easily be turned from this desire to the desire of taking the life of another. I can prove my theory. And if necessary, that is exactly what I will do. Yes, Professor Antonio Basile has a theory, but only a theory. And he's worried about what his publisher will say. So he visits the editor, whose name is Hellman. Hellman finishes the manuscript and tosses it on the desk. Professor Basile leans forward eagerly and... Well, Hellman, what do you think? Professor Basile, it's purely conjecture, simply a theory, and I wouldn't advise publishing it. I worked on that theory for a long time. I'm positive of it. I know it'll work. Suppose it will. What good is it? What good have you accomplished if you can prove it'll work? <laughs> Are you laughing at me, Helen? It's so silly. An ordinary human being has suffered reverses. is sick of it all. He wants to leave it all behind. And you say he can be changed to want to kill someone else. I do. Self-destruction and the destruction of other life are closely related in the mind. The dividing line is very thin. It's ridiculous. And you won't publish it? Ranger would fire me. Why? He told me that, in his opinion, you should be in the asylum. Mr. Granger said that. Does he think I'm insane? <laughs> How do I know? Herman, Mr. Granger didn't say that. It's you who thinks I'm crazy. You've never liked me. For some reason, you are trying to tear me down. Well, we'll see, Mr. Herman. We'll see. Now, wait a minute. I'll show you whether my works are illogical. I'll show you whether I'm insane. Oh, calm down. <laughs> I'm going to make you eat those words. I know you don't like me, but I'm going to prove that my theory is sound. Good night. Wait a minute. Basil, wait. You wait, Herman. You wait. Yes, wait, Herman. Wait. Professor Basile, seething with resentment, rushes from the office and strides angrily down the street. Insane, huh? I'll prove my theory. I'll find the subject. I'll find someone who wants to take his own life. And so Basile goes home, late for dinner. He finds a note from his wife, Myra, saying she's decided to attend the opera and will be home around 11.30. 
Then Professor Basile gets an inspiration. He goes to the bridge over the deep canyon, the bridge called Suicide. And strangely enough, he hasn't long to wait. As he stands against the railing in the fog, a figure appears a few feet beyond, stops, prepares to leap. Don't do it! Wait a minute! Listen. Huh? That's very silly. Let go of me. Oh, no. I couldn't do that. I need you. I don't need you. Don't you know this is uh, against the law? You're not an officer. You can't stop me. It's 500 feet to those tracks below. Hard steel rails. And don't believe what they all tell you about not being conscious of what happened. You'd know. People don't die instantly. Let loose. They lie in agony for minutes and sometimes for an hour. It's a horrible death, I know. How do you know? I'm a doctor. Doctor? Yes. I can tell you much simpler ways, much less painful ways and quicker. You're a nice young girl, an intelligent girl. You wouldn't want it to happen this way. Maybe after I talk to you a while, you wouldn't want to do this at all. No. No. But come on. Let's talk it over. Maybe a few minutes talk will change the entire picture for you. What could you do to help me? If you'll come, I'll tell you. There's a motive back of your wanting to do this, and I'd like to know what it is. Nothing doing. Haven't you any relatives? Any loved ones you'd like to do something for? Yes. Then if you'll talk with me for a while... Maybe I can find my way clear to help those people. You sound crazy to me. Oh, no. All right, I'll... Where? My apartment. Let's go. Well, here we are. Come in, please. Well, what do you want to know? Sit down first. Are you hungry? No, I'm not that broke. It isn't poverty. I knew that. I could tell by your clothes. Now, first, why did you come here? Why? Why, because you talked me into it. I <laughs> see. You're not afraid of me? Afraid? In my frame of mind. What can I lose? Suppose I told you that I really brought you here to kill you. Kill me? <laughs> you know, you're a very pretty girl, don't you? Yeah. That doesn't always mean so much. The right man, it might. That's what I thought. But I found out it didn't mean a thing. Ah. Then it was because of a man. I knew it. Really? How did you guess? I'm a student of psychology. I'm Professor Antonio Basile. I see. And you want to know what makes me tick? You want to know the reason behind my action tonight? That's right. I would like to know what happened to make you want to kill yourself. Suicide is a mental aberration. Yeah. I'd like to know what preceded the decision to destroy yourself. What you thought about until the moment I stopped you on the bridge. What good will that do me? You said you weren't broke, but you also said you had some loved ones you'd like to do something for. I meant I wasn't broke to the point of being hungry. I have a few dollars. But you suggested help for someone in larger terms. Yes, I did. Who is the loved one? My mother. 
You are her only means of support? Yes. And you intend to kill yourself? Yes. That's being selfish, isn't it? Selfish? Yes. You are concentrating solely on self. You think so? What else? The first law of human nature is self-preservation, right? I suppose so. The second law is the preservation of family. Yeah. So you decide to deny the first law and destroy yourself. And as a consequence, deny the second and leave your mother alone and in need. You indicate a form of insanity. What would be normal? To destroy the other person. The one who has done you wrong. Have you hurt him? No. Then the one who has done wrong should be the one to suffer. You have no legal recourse? Legal recourse? No, I haven't. I'm sorry to say. And you would kill yourself to let your poor mother suffer because of the wrong of another. Why shouldn't he be the one to suffer? I suppose you're right. Why shouldn't he? What happened after all? Why not tell me about it? Were you married? No. I never seemed to find time to get a wrong marriage. What's your name? Gladys. Gladys Tanner. How long had you known him? Almost four years. And you always thought he meant to marry you? Yes. Until three weeks ago. Yes? On July 1st, he had to leave town for a week on business. He said he was going to Kansas City. When he came back, he seemed to be too busy to see me. Then a week ago, I found a snapshot along with several others in his desk in his home. May I see it? Certainly. It's a picture of him and another woman. But the picture was not taken in Kansas City. It was? No. It was taken on the beach at Atlantic City. And it's dated by the finisher, July 3rd. Since he returned, he's refused to see me. Yesterday, he finally said he didn't care to see me anymore. That I'd better forget him. But it isn't so easy as that, is it? No. I figured I'd done something. And blame myself. Do you... Uh, do you know this blonde woman in this uh, snapshot? No. Then it must be a woman uh, he has met uh, recently. You've known him for, for four years. I don't think you are to blame He's the one in the wrong. And he should be made to suffer. How? You were going to kill yourself. Why should you? Kill him instead. He double-crossed you. He deserves it. Now, let me go a little deeper into the situation. Whenever a person has reached the conclusion to take his life... made up your mind, Miss Tanner. Positive. Now, if you're careful, you won't be caught. No. But whether you are or not, I'm giving you this check for a thousand dollars made out to cash to be sent to your mother only after the man is dead. Write his name on this pad. There you are. I will know what has happened by the newspapers. And I will be told payment... Until I learn that you have gone through with it. It'll happen tonight. Very well. You are sure? You are determined? Absolutely. Nothing could stop me. Very good. 
Just what would happen if I did get caught? You won't get caught if you follow my instructions. I know. Now, here is a small revolver. It'll fit easier in your purse. That's all you need. Be sure to wipe your fingerprints off and leave the gun near the body. Well, goodbye, Dr. Basile. Goodbye, Gladys, and good luck. Professor Basile watches Gladys as she crosses the street to the dimly lighted bus stop. Then he rushes to his car and drives away. A few minutes later, he comes to a stop at Hellman's house. Hellman, the editor who ridiculed his theory. Just a minute. Oh. Hello, Basile. Good evening, Hellman. Thought I'd drop out to have a little chat with you. Well, why this time of night? It's kind of late, isn't it? Eleven. Didn't think that was late for you. No? Uh, come in. Thanks. Sit down. What's on your mind? I want to talk to you about my theory you ridiculed so definitely. My theory about suicide. Oh. Well, I just don't believe it, that's all. And I said I'd prove it, didn't I? Yes, but what are you getting at? It's going to be proved. My theory is going to be proved tonight. Oh, that's fine. Go right ahead and prove it. I don't like you, Hellman. I'd never like you. And I know you don't like me. I can't help that, Basil. What are you staring at? Is there someone here with you? Certainly not. Why? That's a woman's purse on the Davenport. Hmm? Oh, my secretary dropped by earlier this evening with the manuscript. She must have forgotten it. She's not here now? Of course not. Then I'll continue. I found a subject. A girl who was ready to commit suicide because a man jilted her. In a few hours, I was successful in changing her thoughts from suicide to homicide, and she is going to kill the man tonight. What do you think of that? There may be a dozen murders tonight. Ah, but you'll know which one I mean. You'll know about this murder. What do you mean? Because I'm going to tell you who the victim is going to be. You know who the intended victim is? Why don't you stop it? <laughs> but then I wouldn't have proved my theory. If you put this girl up to it, you're as guilty as she is. <laughs> you're insane, Basile. Hopelessly insane. You think so, Emma? The whole idea is mad. Too utterly ridiculous for words. <laughs> no sane man would ever think of such a useless, senseless idea. And for heaven's sake, stop laughing. I'm thinking about the victim... Then he learned. Who is the victim? Martin Hellman. Me? Yes, you. <laughs> I don't believe you. You will this time. Who is this girl? I know no girl who'd want to kill me. This one does. Now. Oh, nonsense. However, I wouldn't put a past you to hire someone to do something like this. No, no. This girl is no fake. This girl is serious. Deadly serious. You probably hypnotized some poor woman, figuring she'd never remember what happened. Oh, Hellman, you underestimate me. Maybe I do underestimate your evil mind. But believe Put me... Put up your hands, Hellman. Get away from that desk. I'll just take care of that gun, Hellman. That's better. Well, since when did you start carrying a gun, Basile? Ah, a gun? Don't be silly. This isn't a gun in my pocket. It's just my pipe. 
See? <laughs> well, what do you hear, Hermann? Uh, nothing. Oh, yes, you do. I heard it, too. The sound on the porch. I leave now. The back way. I put your gun in the kitchen. And I'll be very careful to remove all my fingerprints. You insane fool. Oh, fancy you. You, Hellman, you are going to help prove my theory. <laughs> Good night, Hellman. Easy, devil. I'll have him locked up before he gets across town. Good evening, Mr. Hellman. Huh? How did you get in here? Through the patio door. What do you want? I wanted to talk to you. Very strangely. <laughs> You're just imagining things. And what are you doing here? I wanted to tell you something. Yeah? What? When you first indicated to me that you were through with me, I was terribly hurt. I thought all along that we were to be married... I couldn't understand. I tried and tried to think of something I'd done to cause our breakup. Then I happened to find this snapshot in your desk. Snapshot? Take a look at it. Kansas City. No, Atlantic City, New Jersey. You and a blonde. And the date is stamped on the back. A business trip. Ha! Well, what about it? I just wanted you to know that you weren't so slick. I wanted you to know that I knew about the blonde. That I knew you'd lied. Now that you've told me, what good does it do you? A lot of good. First, I thought you came here for money. How could you think such a thing? Well, I think you'd better go now. <laughs> I'm going. Goodbye, Morton. And good luck in your new venture. What venture? This one. Gladys. Gladys! And wish me luck in mine. Gladys stands staring a moment at the body of Hellman, then wipes off the gun, drops it to the floor, takes the professor's check from her purse, steps to Hellman's desk and writes a note. Then she puts the note in an envelope with the check, addresses it, stamps it, turns out the lights, and steps out into the dark street. At the corner, she drops the envelope in the mailbox and disappears. Professor Basile heard the shots. His theory worked. Hellman will torment him no more. The perfect crime. So he can go home to his wife now and go to sleep. Myra. Myra. Huh? What? Oh, oh, Antonio. What are you doing asleep on the Davenport? Do you know what time it is? It must be after midnight. I've been waiting for you. How was opera? Oh, fair. Nothing to brag about. Who sang the lead? Belchiotti. He wasn't very good. Belchiotti? Mm-hmm. He's a poor Othello. Othello? I thought they were uh, doing Ida tonight. No, they switched because someone was ill. Oh, they just as soon have stayed home. Have a night, Capmira? No, thanks. I'm tired. I think I'll go to bed. I'll be long presently. Good night. Good 
Then the night passes and the morning comes. The professor rises cheerfully and prepares for breakfast. Then... I get it, Myra. Yes? Are you Professor Basile? Yes. May we come in? We'd like to talk with you. Of course. What is it you want? Is your wife in? Yes. We'd like to see her, too. Who are you? Oh, I'm Lieutenant Davis. Right. Detective Davis. Well, what do you want? Will you call your wife? Why? Suddenly. Myra! But what's this all about? What is it, Antonio? These men are from detective headquarters. They want to talk to us. Really? What about? May I ask where you were last night, Mrs. Basile? Certainly. I went to the opera. What time did you get home? Oh, I imagine it was around 11 or shortly after. Mm-hmm. Were you at home last evening, Professor? Well, I was at the club and got home about 12.30. By the way, uh, do you know Morton Hellman? Certainly. What about him? He's been murdered. Murdered? Good Lord. When? Around midnight last night. I found him this morning. How terrible. Why, I've known him for years. He was editor-in-chief of the company publishing my writings. I'm a psychologist, you know. Yes, we know. But uh, what do you want to know from us? We weren't connected socially with Hellman. Uh, just in business. Did uh, you know him, Mrs. Basile? Yes, yes, I knew him very slightly. Do either of you know of anyone who'd have reason to kill him? Uh, certainly not. Everyone thought highly of him. Did you ever hear of a girl named Gladys Tanner? Gladys Tanner? No. Did you know of a Gladys Tanner, Mrs. Basile? No. Is this your purse, Mrs. Basile? Why, of course it is. That's the one I gave you last Christmas, Myra. Well, yes. I must have lost it downtown. Where did you find it, Lieutenant? At Hellman's home. Hellman's home? Well, how in the world? Good heavens, but We how... found it on the sofa. Well, I can't imagine how it could get there. And this is the revolver that killed Hellman, found on the floor beside him. What? No fingerprints on it, however. What? what? May I see it? Why, Myra, this is your gun. I bought this for you two years ago when I went on the lecture tour. Yes, I think it's mine, but it just doesn't make sense. Did you have the gun in your purse when you lost it last time? Well, I... Perhaps I did. I'm so confused now I can't remember. I think, Myra. I think it is, it is terrible. Oh, I know. Oh, dear, I feel ill. Did you ever fire this gun? Yes, once last year up in the mountains. I wanted to see how it worked. Ever reloaded? No, I've never reloaded it. I, I just didn't think about it. Maybe I did put it in my purse. Why, I don't know. And, and whoever found the purse may have used the gun to... Oh, I just can't seem to see. This gun misfired on the first two shots. The other three killed Hellman. This is the most amazing piece of coincidence I ever heard of. Why would my wife want to do such a thing? Why should she get to Hellman? She hardly knew him. Are you sure about that, Professor? Of course. Well, sorry to say that I don't believe her. What? This is ridiculous. This is going to be a shock to you, Professor, but here's a snapshot we found on Hellman's desk. Taken in Atlantic City last July. Good heavens. Why, this is you, my... You and Hellman. You were at your mother's in Florida in July. <laughs> Myra, look at me. What does this mean? I can't. I can't. And I can't believe such a thing. May I have the purse, the gun, and the photo? Thank you. I'm sorry, but I'll have to take her down to headquarters. But I didn't kill him. I didn't. I wouldn't. I loved him. 
Myra. You better pull yourself together. You'll have to go back. You'll want photos and fingerprints. Yes. You better get it ready, Myra. Certainly looks bad for her. Afraid it does. Looks like an open and shut case. Oh, uh, will you come along too, Professor? Certainly. And so it all worked out beautifully. Not quite as the professor had planned. But then he changed his plan from the moment when Gladys Tanner showed him the snapshot taken in Atlantic City. And he realized that the girl's fiancé was Hellman and the blonde was Myra, his wife. He had no intention of allowing Gladys Tanner to kill Hellman until he saw that snapshot. And when he recognized Myra's purse in Hellman's home... He decided to let Gladys kill him and the blame be placed on Myra. The perfect crime. But several hours later, after fingerprints and many questions, the professor is just about to be dismissed when Sergeant Rankin steps into the room and speaks quietly to Lieutenant Davis. What is it, Rankin? I stayed at the Seals place, as you said. Well? A few minutes ago, a special delivery letter came for the professor. This will knock your eye out. Read it. All right. Well, it fits perfectly with the writing we were trying to make out on Helm's desk letter. Professor, here's a letter sent special delivery to you a few minutes ago, postmarked last night. Read it. Dear Professor Basile, your theory worked a certain degree. You convinced me I should kill him. Uh, I should kill him, uh, but when that gun you gave me uh, misfired twice, I, I almost quit. Go ahead, Professor. Read on. Then as I looked at him on the floor, the feeling of self-destruction came back. I'm going ahead with my plan. Here's your check. I won't need it. Besides, I lied to you. I lost my mother long ago. Better luck next time. Gladys, Tanner. And a half hour ago, they found her body beneath Suicide Bridge. Well, Professor, your perfect crime has failed. Failed? Yes, Failed, wonderful but... setup on paper, but your theory backfired and you're up for murder. But I didn't kill him. But you planned it and you're as guilty as Gladys. She's paid her penalty. Now it's your turn. No. No. I won't. I won't be hanged. Never. Drink and drink. And now the doctor lies on the sidewalk, 17 stories below. His entire theory worked in reverse. So closes the doctor prescribed death starring Bela Lugosi. Tonight's story of suspense. It came to you from Columbia Square in Hollywood. This is the man in black who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday when we present the noted actor, Mr. Sidney Greenstreet, in The Hangman Won't Wait.
James Spear, the producer, Ted Bliss, the director, Lud Gluskin, the musical director, Lucian Mahwick, the composer, and J. Donald Wilson, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is the Man in Black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Our star tonight is Mr. Sidney Greenstreet, one of Hollywood's most sensational newcomers in a number of years. The famed fat man who lent his suspenseful talents to the Maltese Falcon and across the Pacific. Mr. Greenstreet is with us to create on the air John Dixon Carr's celebrated detective, Dr. Gideon Fell. The story called The Hangman Won't Wait is tonight's tale of suspense. If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with The Hangman Won't Wait and Mr. Greenstreet's performance, we again hope to keep you in... Suspense. He comes striding towards us now, beaming like old King Cole. You can probably hear him chuckle. If he wheezes a little, that's due to weighing more than 300 pounds. Slander, sir. Gross slander. You notice the three chins in the bandit's mustache and the eyeglasses on the black ribbon. He removes his hat with old school courtesy. Uh, uh, don't try to bow, doctor. He is Gideon Fell, doctor of philosophy and expert in crime. If he tells us something about the Barton case... Sir, I have only one remark to make about the Barton case. Everybody was wrong. I'm afraid we don't quite follow that. The judge was wrong. The jury were wrong. The prosecution was wrong. The defense was wrong. But, Dr. Fell, you can't have a murder case in which everybody is wrong. In my cases, sir, you can have practically anything. Oh, yes, that's true enough, but... Uh... I want you to imagine yourself in the position of that girl, Helen Barton. Well? Imagine yourself waking up suddenly in the middle of the night. You're terrified. You don't know why. The room is cold and nearly dark. All of a sudden, you realize it's a room you've never seen before. There's a queer smell like old stone and disinfectant. There's no sound except... I... 
What is it? What was that? Now lean back in your bed, dearie. It's all right. Yes, take it easy, miss. I... I was dreaming. You were having a nightmare, dearie. But it's all right now. Nothing's going to hurt you. Not yet. Be quiet, Anna. All right, all right. Would you like us to turn on all the lights, miss? Please, would you do that? You see, I... I don't understand this. Where am I and how did I get here? And who are you? Now, don't start that all over again, please. Start what all over again? Saying you've lost your memory and don't even know what your name is. Are you insane? Of course I know what my name is. I'm Helen Barton. Ah. But it's all I do know. Where am I? Why on earth is it so cold? Well, that's not unusual, you know, for England in the middle of December. Did you say December? That's right, dearie. 18th of December. You're fooling me. You're playing a trick on me. My head feels queer and I want to start crying, but I won't. It's not December. It's the end of August. I was going up to see Philip. Well, that's it. I was going up to see Philip. Philip? Philip Gale, the man I'm going to marry. Be quiet, Anna. And don't turn on these lights yet. She's having a son. She's... Anna! This child's shaking all over. And so help me, she don't know where she is. Listen, dearie, I'm going to sit down on the bed beside you. Now take my hands, hold them tight. What's wrong? Why are you looking at me like that? This is a maiders' prison, miss. Steady, dearie. I'm still dreaming. I must be. You can't mean I'm in prison. Now look, dearie. I'm afraid it's worse than that. Worse than that? Look over there. You see where there's a little bit of fire in the grate? Well, and paper on the wall and pictures and a carpet on the floor. Oh, why don't you come out straight and tell her? They're going to hang you in the morning, miss. This is the condemned cell. Sudden shock, the prison clock smote on the shivering air. But I won't quote that any further. I have too vivid a memory of sitting up that night with Colonel Andrews, the governor of the prison. Over here, you'd call him the warden. There's a little office with a lamp shade, tilted so that I could see his face. And he said... I hate executions. Loathe them. Can't even sleep the night before. If you hadn't offered to come here and save my life... This is a strange place, sir, to talk of saving lives. No, it's no good being sentimental about the thing. That's the law. I didn't make it. But I gather you're not exactly happy about this case. I'm not. That's a fact. Mind you... There's no doubt whatever about the girl's guilt. I'm gratified to hear it. But if only she'd confess. Most of them do, you know. They confess to you? To me or to the hangman. Not often to the chaplain, because they think he'll threaten them with the hereafter. But when Kirkwood goes in with the strap to bind their arm, he says to him, I don't like to think I'm doing something that would be on my conscience. 
So if you'd care to tell me... <laughs> Quite a sensitive fellow you are, Hagman. Now, look here, I'm serious. So am I. Sometimes I wish I had any job in the world but mine. If only the girl would confess. If she'd just stop this nonsense about not remembering. Not remembering what? Not remembering how... Well... Not remembering how she shot Philip Gale. Not remembering anything, even her own name. Total amnesia, covering a crime. Sir, you frighten me. You mean to say that a woman suffering from loss of memory can be tried and sentenced to death? No. Not if she really has lost her memory. Well, then... But this defense was a fake. You're quite sure of that? Naturally. The judge would never have allowed it to come to trial if he hadn't been convinced that she was shamming. Even then... She might have got off with a life sentence or even with manslaughter if it hadn't been for the nature of the crime. She didn't cut anybody up, I hope. No, but it was almost as bad. She shot a man who had raised his hands and begged for mercy. That completely damned her in the eyes of the jury. And yet, you have doubts. I tell you, I haven't any doubts. And in any case, it's none of my business. How has she acted since she's been here? Oh, a model prisoner. But I wish she'd stop this business of seeming to be in a daze. It's getting on my nerves. Rather think the prison itself would get on my nerves. I looked into your execution shed once, and I don't want to look again. Oh, you get used to it after a while. Helen Barton won't. Tell me about her. Nice girl, too. I knew her grandfather. Live near here? Yes. Born and bred in Maidhurst. She got mixed up with a thoroughgoing swine named Philip Gale. Crazy about him. Wouldn't hear a word against him. Then he threw her over for a woman with money. I see. He had a bungalow on White Rose Hill. She went up there one Sunday afternoon. Alone? Yes. Herbert Gale, Philip's brother, heard them screaming at each other. He ran in to see what was wrong. Philip was trying to chase the girl out. She grabbed a thirty-two revolver out of the table drawer and told Philip to put up his hands. That scared him and he did put up his hands. Then she shot him dead. And afterwards? Afterwards, she couldn't remember. Couldn't remember anything? No, pretended she didn't even recognize her own family. She said, who is Philip Gale? Mm-hmm. And you hang her tomorrow morning? Yes. Without ever hearing her side of the case? Well, confound it, man. There's no doubt about the evidence. Are you sure? She killed Philip Gale. Gail's brother, Herbert, saw her do it. This hypocrisy about not remembering. Emotional shock could do just that, you know. Oh, she wasn't so emotionally shocked that it disturbed her aim. She drilled him clean through the heart at 15 feet. The bullet entered in a dead straight line through coat, waistcoat, shirt, and heart. You could have run a pencil through the holes. Now, don't sit there puffing out your cheeks and waving a cigar at me. I'm only... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Colonel Andrews, aren't you talking to convince yourself? No. Suppose that girl is telling the truth. Suppose she has lost her memory. Yeah. All right. You don't believe that. Suppose it. And suppose in some black hour just before the hangman comes that a memory returns. Don't talk rubbish. But I've lived long enough to know that mental suffering is the cruelest form of suffering on this earth. Imagine yourself in that position. Come out of a daze into what you thought was a safe and pleasant world. You don't know where you are. You don't know what's happened. You only know that when the clock strikes eight, 
They're going to take you out and... Did you hear that? Yes. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yes. It isn't possible. Very much fear it is. Sometimes, you know, we have to use drugs. Drugs? Yes. When we take them to the execution shed. It's only a short distance and we try to get it over in a matter of seconds, but sometimes they can't walk. Yes? What is it? Beg pardon, sir. But I thought I'd better get you, or the doctor, or the chaplain, or both. Well, what's the matter with you men? You're as white as a ghost. Can't help that, sir. I've been a warder at this place for a matter of 15 years, but I never knew anything like this. It's the uh, upstairs room, I suppose, Miss uh, Barton? Yes, sir. Hysterical? Yes, sir. She says, well, she says she remembers now. I see. She's carrying on something awful, sir, but that ain't all. She claims she never done it. What's that? She claims she never killed Mr. Gale at all. That's all, Harris. You may go. Yes, sir. Any other disturbances in the building? Well, sir, they're, they're a bit restless and A-wing. Oh, that's usual. Yes, sir. And there's a bloke uh, outside the prison, I mean, who keeps hanging about in front of the main gate. You can see him by the street lamp. First, he'll take a few little quick steps back and forth. Then he'll run and stick his face against the bars of the gate. Then he'll go back to pacing again. Fair gave me the creeps it did even before this other thing. You don't happen to know who he is? It's the other Mr. Gale, sir. Herbert Gale. I haven't the art to chase him away. All right, Harris, go ahead. I'll be along in a minute. Yes, sir. So the girl claims to be innocent. You heard that, eh? Yes, I heard it. What do you mean to do? I'll see the girl, of course. But it won't affect the issue. Not even if she does happen to be innocent. Fell in the name of heaven, try to understand my position. Believe me, I do understand it. The jury convicted this girl of murder. Her appeal was dismissed. The Home Secretary has refused to intervene on behalf of the King. You couldn't do anything even if you wanted to. You couldn't even appeal to the Home Secretary without new evidence. Exactly. And it's too late for new evidence, because you can't just accept the word of Helen Barton. All the same, I'm dreading this interview. Uh, it's uh, against regulations, but uh, I wish you'd come along with me. Oh, if there only something... There isn't. <laughs> Where's the whiskey? I, I, I think a little stimulant. She will need the stimulant. Well, it's a cold night. It'll be colder yet where she's going. The governor and the big stout gentleman believe you didn't do it. Oh, no, they don't. You needn't try to fool me. Look at them over there in the corner whispering. Fell, she's lying. I heard that. You said, Fell, she's lying, but I'm not lying. I'm not. Yes, you've got to pull yourself together. And have a nice breakfast. What would you like for breakfast? Thank you for joining us at 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We try to alternate weeks with two episodes of Escape one week, followed by two episodes of Suspense the following week. New episodes of 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense are available every Sunday at noon Eastern Time. We always appreciate reviews. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.